A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Usually, scientists can't pin a given weather event on climate change. They can only say it was made more likely. But some cases are so extreme that they permit no other explanation, like the current heat wave and rash of fires in Siberia. And some passports give a lot more freedom to move than others do, a fact that many Africans know all too well. So those who can afford it are looking beyond their own country's limited documents and shopping around for something a bit more permissive. But first... On Friday, Vietnam banned imports of wildlife and the markets where animals are sold in an evident bid to limit future outbreaks of disease. Attention has focused on the wildlife trade ever since the first known outbreak of COVID-19 was traced to a so-called wet market in China. The virus is believed to have emerged in the Chinese city Wuhan late last year. And could have spread to humans via a seafood market in Wuhan, where the virus was first identified. The virus is speculated to have spread from bats to pangolins to humans. At times, the origin of the virus was much more a political question than a scientific one. The Trump administration clearly wants to blame China for exporting it, or even for having created it. Have you seen anything at this point that gives you a high degree of confidence that the Wuhan Institute of Virology was the origin of this virus. Yes, I have. Yes, I have. China strongly denies it. Scientists and U.S. intelligence agencies have said it emerged in nature. Where in nature that first jump into humans was made, though, has never been solved. Researchers are increasingly looking outside China, to Southeast Asian countries, including Vietnam, as well as Myanmar, Laos and Thailand. What's at stake is not just the international blame game. Knowing the coronavirus's path could be an enormous step in preventing future pandemics. One of the ideas about where SARS-CoV-2 comes from is that it's actually a bat virus. Natasha Loder is The Economist's health policy editor. And we also know in China that there's a lot of coronavirus diversity in areas where there's a lot of bat diversity. So we've spent a lot of time looking at bat and coronavirus diversity in China. That's where everyone's looked. But the thing is, is nobody's actually looked across the border. And there's a great deal of bat diversity in Southeast Asia, where you would expect to find, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of novel coronaviruses were you to look. And so how does this, this sort of virus hunting work? 
So there's an American group called EcoHealth Alliance, which works on animals that harbor diseases that move into people. And they've done a lot of this virus hunting with the Chinese. What they do is they essentially go around visiting places where bats go, typically caves, but they also roost in trees. And they'll take samples. And so it's long, difficult and dirty work. And when you start to do that work, you find that bats just harbour a tremendous array of viruses, particularly coronaviruses. You know, these coronaviruses also mingle and change. The whole region is very much a sort of coronaviral melting pot, a sort of evolutionary hotspot for coronaviruses. And when you look closely, you actually find that some of these viruses are quite well adapted to infecting humans. And certainly that's been the suggestion about the outbreak in, in China was, was uh, bats and connections with wet markets and the like. But why would the pandemic have started in central China if the virus itself might have started elsewhere? I mean, this is a fascinating detective story, and we're only just starting to see some of the pieces fall into place. And there are actually several possibilities. One possibility is the virus could have emerged from some part of this viral melting pot and somehow been taken in its current form all the way to Wuhan. It could be somebody has collected bats, they've traded them, perhaps the trader was carrying a disease. There's also another possibility. I was speaking to Jeremy Farrer, who heads the Wellcome Trust, a biomedical research charity, and he guesses that something similar to SARS-CoV-2 has been circulating in people in Southeast Asia, probably for many years. That would be unsurprising given the sort of strong relationships in the region between humans and bats. People go searching for bats for foods, they sell them in market, it's a sophisticated trade. Just the relationship between humans and bats is just very different. It would be unsurprising if we were to find that something similar to SARS-CoV had been circulating in that region. I mean, why wouldn't we have seen an outbreak before now then? So the idea is that it could have been circulating in Southeast Asia or perhaps something closely resembling it for a couple of years. And perhaps the population there is just a little bit more resistant to these sorts of coronaviruses and it wasn't noticed. And that would mean that it would be only when it reached a region like Wuhan, for example, central China, where people were not resistant to this particular novel virus, that the virus was able to take off. But just let me say, I mean, these are still theories. Another possible theory is that it could have arisen in a, a bat in or near Wuhan. That's seen as less likely just because of the sort of genetic detective work that seems to point towards Southeast Asia. One of the curiosities of this outbreak that is hard to explain is just simply the low number of cases in countries like Laos, Myanmar, Vietnam, and possibly even Thailand. I mean, Vietnam is a great curiosity because it shares a border with China and it has about 100 million people and they've had no deaths. And they didn't lock down in the way that China did. So you do have to sort of wonder why it is that people in the region are not catching COVID-19 or they don't appear to be. You know, people who have looked at these things think that there's something else going on. And so what's the next step in solving the mystery then? To sort of, you know, put this jigsaw puzzle together, 
we need to not only look for the ancestral virus, what's the bat population that perhaps gave us the virus, but we also have to try and track back to Wuhan and try and figure out exactly how the virus got there. And if you're going to do that, then you sort of need to go back into China and then start sampling. You can start interviewing people who were sick early on, perhaps, and seeing what connections they had. Then you can start talking to farmers and traders. That's something that needs to happen. The Chinese government has agreed that there can be an international mission later this year, which will be led by the WHO. And, you know, the hope is, is that we can get some answers to some of these questions. And so in practical terms, what will the solution to this genetic detective story, as you call it, do for us in terms of controlling the outbreak that we've got? So the good thing about finding an answer to this question is that we can start to figure out where these viruses are coming from. And that means that we can set up uh, proper surveillance to make sure that we're picking up when novel coronaviruses are coming out from bats. And if there's a strong flow of coronaviruses coming into populations from a certain region of the world, and there are unsafe practices there, whether they are animal trading, animal farming, whether it's mining for fertilizers, whether it's tourists visiting caves, whatever it is, once you've found where that source is, you have the opportunity to start changing human practices in order to limit this flow of viruses and stem it at the source. Natasha, thanks very much for your time. Jason, thank you so much. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Last month, a small town in northeastern Siberia called Verkoyansk reached 38 degrees Celsius, just over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. It was the hottest temperature ever recorded north of the Arctic Circle. Siberia is going through a heat wave, and it wouldn't be happening without climate change. This year, the situation has really been brought to the fore by what is a, a frankly astonishing heat wave. Katrine Breik is The Economist's environment editor. Between January and June's temperatures across Siberia were more than five degrees warmer than recent averages. And in some places, up close to the Arctic Ocean, you had temperatures that were more than 10 degrees higher than, than the recent historical average. So it's really sort of highlighting the situation at the top of the planet. And so the suggestion is that this is strongly linked to climate change. There's a team of researchers that call themselves the World Weather Attribution Initiative, and they basically run computer models very, very quickly, almost as an event is unfolding, in order to try and figure out whether an extreme weather event can be linked to climate change or not. 
Because, of course, floods, droughts, heat waves, all of these kinds of events have always happened. There's always a probability of having a record-breaking year with or without climate change. But what climate change does is that for many of these events, it makes them more likely to happen. It might even make them more extreme. So these researchers have run their models. So basically, if you compare a hypothetical world without any greenhouse gas emissions, no pre-industrial revolution, no human greenhouse gas emissions, to a world that is our world, which has this sort of accumulation of carbon dioxide, methane, and other greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, look at the odds of this type of heat wave happening now. And they've concluded with high confidence that global warming made the January to June heat wave at least 600 times more likely of occurring. And in terms of being able to attribute these kinds of events to to climate change, that is a a really outlandishly high number, right? It really is. So in the past, these types of studies have found that an event was made perhaps twice as likely of occurring as a result of climate change or five or maybe 10 times. This is several orders of magnitude greater. And so as for the, the event that's going on in the Arctic, I mean, what are the onward effects? There are many onward effects. It's it's kind of difficult to feel connected to the Arctic because there's not many people up there and it feels very far away. But um, one reason that uh, that climatologists are interested in the Arctic is because a lot of what happens up there drives the weather in further south. So that's one impact. Of course, the most direct and most visible impact is the disappearance of the sea ice. So this is, you know, the ice cap at the top of the planet, which grows in the winter and shrinks in the summer. Well, for the past few decades, we've seen the summer extent decrease massively. And, you know, we're wondering at what point we're going to see an ice-free summer in the Arctic, which would be extraordinary. On land, there's other issues. Last year was quite notable for the huge number of fires in the Arctic. Recently, uh, researchers have crunched the numbers and found that the number of fires between May and June in 2019, I think it was roughly between 600 and 650 fires were recorded within the Arctic Circle. And that's about 10 times more than the average for 2003 to 2018. Now, this year, between May and June, they recorded in the region of 950 fires. So if last year was remarkable, then this year is truly extraordinary. And and what are the knock-on effects of this increase in fires at the top of the world? There's some other interesting um, information that's come out. One big concern is that the Arctic contains a lot of peat soils, and these are ancient soils that are very, very high in organic material, There are vast stores of carbon, basically organic material that is degraded, decomposed over centuries to millennia and ends up being trapped in these sort of, um, in the Arctic in frozen soils, so frozen peat soils. If you burn peat, it releases all of that carbon as carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Um, And the concern last year was that a lot of these fires might, in fact, be releasing that CO2. The data now shows that more than half of the fires in May and June last year were on peat soils. And this year, again, in that same period, roughly half of the fires are burning peat. So the sort of positive feedback effect on climate change is also of huge concern. 
And and given all of these data and uh, and, and what we're seeing in particular this year, do you have the sense that it, the Arctic is well kind of a, a lost cause at the sort of leading edge of, of what we're going to see in climate change? It looks like it's already sort of tipped. I think it's too soon to say that, but that's definitely a concern, in particular because we know from other studies that cutting emissions now will really only impact global average temperatures in the next few decades. So you won't see this sort of immediate impact on global average temperatures. So even if you were to have miraculously some kind of concerted effort to tackle the root cause of this problem, you would still see a warming trend in the Arctic for many years to come. And of course, as you warm the Arctic, you continue to dry out the vegetation and you continue to create opportunities for these wildfires, which kicks in the positive feedback loop. I think it's too soon to use the term tipping point. That's something that climate researchers are very wary of because it means that there is no return. And it's too soon to say that that's the case, but I think it's definitely time to be very concerned about the situation in the North. Katrine, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. For a lot more analysis like this, subscribe to The Economist. To find the best introductory offer wherever you are, just go to economist.com slash intelligence offer. For more than 100 years, the modern passport has been a golden ticket to hassle-free travel. For some. The thing is that not all passports are created equal. Unfortunately for Nigerians in particular, their passport doesn't allow for visa-free travel to most countries. And that's a problem for quite a lot of other African passports as well. Kinley Salmon is The Economist's Africa correspondent. So to get around this, wealthy Africans are basically going passport shopping and trying to buy up more useful passports that will let them into countries they might otherwise have difficulty getting to. How limited is a Nigerian passport? On a Nigerian passport, you can only travel to a little under 50 countries visa-free. If you compare that to, say, a Maltese passport, a Maltese passport can get you into over 180 countries without a visa. And in particular at the moment, of course, some people are thinking this is, a, amidst the COVID pandemic, a good time to have a plan B of a second passport. So how do they go about expanding their options then? Well, the first thing, of course, is that you need to have a lot of money. And then there are a number of firms of businesses, actually, that help Africans to decide which country might be a good passport to try to go for. And wealthy country shoppers have a range of options. Nigerians are particularly fond of Caribbean passports, partly because these can be acquired in just three months. They're also able to get hold of residency in some cases by investing in property in Europe in some countries. And so among Africans, it's principally Nigerians that are chasing this route now? Well, actually, quite a number of Africans from different countries are looking into it. South Africans in particular seem to favor sunny Portugal, along with many Kenyans. But of course, there is a history of Chinese and Middle Eastern elites having sought foreign citizenship in the past. So it's not a uniquely African phenomenon at all, but Africans are now doing it more and more. But you say it takes a fair bit of money. I mean, what kind of numbers are we talking about here? 
Uh, well, for example, a passport from Antigua and Barbuda in the Caribbean requires what they term a contribution of $100,000 to the government's National Development Fund or a property investment of $200,000, but that can actually be sold off within five years. If you're looking for something in Europe, Portugal tends to be one of the preferred options. There you can buy a villa for as little as €280,000 and gain residency over time. And of course, EU citizenship is particularly sought after given the free movement that it helps to facilitate but that costs you. So a donation of €650,000 to the government of Malta, in addition to about half a million euros of investment, should get a passport from Malta. And the cash that countries earn from these schemes really does add up, which is partly why they offer them. In Dominica, for example, annual inflows from foreigners buying citizenship was worth about 10% of GDP. But a lot of the talk in the past about this sort of money for citizenship scheme is not just ease of doing business, but let's call it more risky business. Is there not more room for mischief this way? Yes, there is a risk of mischief with these investments in passports. The EU Justice Commissioner worries they can be used to facilitate money laundering. And a Kenyan tycoon who's appeared in court on allegations of tax evasion recently had his passport in Cyprus looked into. One way to reduce the demand and avoid some of these problems would be to make it easier for Africans to visit and work in rich countries in normal times. But until then, probably only the rich and powerful in Nigeria and elsewhere on the continent are going to be able to benefit from a passport that opens doors, which of course many of us take for granted. Kinley, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And see you back here tomorrow. This is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.